Antoine has already read to us the text, which we will take as a text to get into what we want to study today. Found in John 1, 37 through 51. I won't go through and read that text again, just hit some highlights from it. In that text, what you see in verse 38 is that two men asked, Jesus asked two men who were following him, what they were seeking, what seek ye, he says in verse 38. And after they reply, he tells them in verse 39, come and see. Nathaniel had a question in verse 45 and 46, and Philip gives him the same reply that Jesus gave to these others. Verse 45 says, Philip finds Nathaniel and said, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did right. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Then down in the text in verse 50 and 51, Jesus placed an even greater emphasis on coming and seeing. When he said in reply to Nathaniel, who had just made a confession that he was the son of God very quickly, he said, Because I saw the end of the fig tree, believest thou, thou shalt see greater things than these. Verily I say unto you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You may have heard the statement before, seeing is believing. In the book of John, we're going to embark in a little study over about seven sermons, hopefully, and, and do that. We're going to see to believe. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman of the well. And the first thing that she sees when she sees Jesus is a Jew. In verse 9, she sees that Jesus is a Jew and she points out that the Jews normally don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. They continue to talk. And in verse 19, what she sees is a prophet. She said, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Then in verse 25 and 26, she begins to see that he's the Messiah. The woman said, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I that speak to thee am. Notice the he there is in italics. And she wants others to see him as Messiah because in verse 28, the woman left her water pot, went to the city, and said to the man, Come and see, a man which told me all the things I ever did. Is not this the Messiah? Then they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed for the master to eat. Then the Samaritans came and saw it. Look at verse 39. Many of the Samaritans of the city believed for the test on him for the testimony of the one which testifies, he told me all things that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of the saying, which, but we have heard him ourselves. And we know indeed this is Christ, the Savior of the world. What I want to do is embark in a kind of a survey of seven ideas from John that we need to come and see. 
The first one we're going to find in John 2, where we see Jesus has the power to transform. Then later on, we'll occasion on into John 4, where we see that Jesus has the power over distance. Then we'll go into John 5 and see that Jesus has the power over weakness. Then in John 6, the first part of that text, we'll see that Jesus has the power over shortages. Then we'll find out Jesus has power over our problems. Then we will notice that in John 9, he has the power over blindness, which will have great emphasis in this era of come and see. And then finally, we find out in John 11, he has the power over disappointment. But let's look today just at the fact that Jesus has the power transform. We know the beginning of miracles is found in John chapter 2. Let's read it first. It says, The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatsoever he saith to you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Then uh, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made into wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. It saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. When men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles is Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and disciples, and they continued there not many days. So everyone's familiar with this miracle. On this occasion, Jesus transforms the water into wine. Now, uh, you know from just uh, cursory knowledge of your Bible that every time you see the word wine in the Bible, it does not refer to some alcoholic beverage. For example, if you'll just, if you don't know this verse, you might want to mark it. Back in the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, if you'll note there, verse 8, there the text says, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster. So here is something called wine that's still in a cluster. Obviously referring to grape juice because only grape juice comes in clusters. Alcoholic beverages take time to process. It's clear from the context here that this is not referring to some kind of an alcoholic wine. In fact, even those who advocate this view of social drinking, those who are so-called Christians at least admit that drunkenness is wrong. For example, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 clearly says drunkenness is wrong. But here's Jesus at a, at a wedding feast where people had already well drunk, according to verse 10. And now he turns around and makes six water pots of stone, two to three firkins apiece, meaning 20 to 30 gallons 
piece, indicating somewhere around 150 gallons of wine made. Uh, that's not social drinking. That's the biggest open bar you've ever seen, if it was alcoholic wine. Uh, not exactly what Jesus would be involved in when the Old Testament pronounced woe unto him that giveth his neighbor to drink. Uh, but however, let me go past that. On this occasion, what Jesus does do is transform this water into what the text calls here wine, meaning that it underwent a change, a big change, a transformation, in fact. Jesus transforms things. If you go back to the story of Peter back in chapter 1 of John, you'll notice that Jesus says in verse 41, he first finds his own brother Simon and said, We have found Messiah, which is interpreted Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus beheld and said, Thou art Simon, son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. He changed his name there from Simon to Peter. God has long time been involved in changing people's names indicate a change in what he wants them to do. For example, there was a man in the Old Testament named Abram, who in Genesis 17, verses 5 and 6, the name Abram means high father, had his name changed to father of many nations. Genesis 17, verse 5 and 6. He had a wife named Sarah, Sarai, with an I at the end, meaning contentious who had her name changed in Genesis seventeen fifteen to Sarah, meaning princess, indicating that royalty would come from her. There was a young man in the Old Testament named Jacob. His name means heel grabber or supplanter. You remember he was named because as Esau came out of the womb first, Jacob held on to the heel as he was coming out, wanting to sort of catch up to him and be first in line for everything in life, especially the blessing and the birthright. But he later would have his name changed in Genesis 22 and verse 28 at Bethel to Israel, meaning he who struggles with God. And on and on we go through the Old Testament with God changing people's names to indicate some new situation. But we know God can change people, right? Although it says, Malachi 3.6, Behold, I am Jehovah, I change not. He certainly has been involved in changing people. If you go to Exodus 4 and verse 10, there you see a man standing at the burning bush saying, I can't talk. And he changes this non-speaker into the greatest spokesman Israel ever saw in the Old Testament. You know that he can change objects. In 2 Samuel, verse 42, beginning... Here's Goliath standing up challenging the very armies of the living God. And he says, you come out to me with a bunch of sticks. And he changed the weapons that were going to be used in that fight from the sword of Saul to the stones that could just be found on the ground, obviously made by who? God himself. He could change stones into weapons. He could, he could change a man sold into slavery to another country, the Midianites, into the one who is in authority 
over all the decisions made in Egypt that Pharaoh doesn't make himself. He could change somebody, and I'm going to point this out, who was a non-candidate for king. By that I mean he wasn't even running. You remember, they went to the house of Jesse, old Samuel did, going to have a king election, and a lot of people were in the running. And you remember that story that's told there in 1 Samuel 16, that the whole family was there. And first the oldest one stood up, and he said, surely... This is the one. He's almost as good looking as Saul. He's so tall. He's handsome. And he's got on an Armani suit. He must be the one. God said he's not the one. So they go down all the way to the bottom of the list, they think. That's it. And he says to Jesse, isn't there somebody else that's running for king? He says, I don't have any more sons except for that one guy out there keeping those sheep. And you remember that was the one, the non-candidate who became king. In Mark three sixteen and 17, there was a guy named John who was referred to by Jesus as one of the sons of thunder because you remember the Samaritans were there and they had rejected Jesus and, and they said to Jesus, hey, do you think we, we ought to call down fire from heaven and, and devour them for you? By the time John writes 1 John, he's not known as the son of thunder, but he's called the apostle of love. Since Saul of Tarsus was there, you remember that he was he had letters to catch anybody that was found following Christ and have them put to death. But you remember that he turned Saul the persecutor into Paul the soul winner. See, God can make some amazing transformations. He just doesn't turn water into wine. He turns useless people into useful people. And He can transform you. Look look at just two passages in the New Testament. Turn with me first to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 and see what some of the folks in Corinth were. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. Apparently there had been a change. Because they weren't that anymore. At what point they stopped being that? He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. When would Paul be talking about this washing? Well, if I know Paul, in Acts 22 and verse 16, he's the same Paul that was told, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's the point at which they stopped being what they were and became what they were supposed to be. Washed, sanctified, and justified. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. And look what some of these folks were. In Ephesians 1. Make that Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you hath he made alive who were dead 
in trespasses and sins. These people were dead. In which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of your sons of disobedience, among whom also you conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our mind, and were by nature the children of wrath as were others. These are the people that Paul wrote to and said, now you're Christians. He's going to eventually call them the book of Ephesians. You are the temple of God. What a change. See, Jesus can transform you. You know, God promised you a new name. Go back to Isaiah 66. We were right next to it in Isaiah 65 a while ago. So we go to Isaiah 66 and look at verse 1 and 2. There it says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build me? Where is this place of rest? Um, what we're seeing there is the fact that God does not need a place, a temple, built for Him to be placed in. As if He were going to be stuck in one place and unable to move to any other place. For we know that Isaiah has told us long ago that God is not that way. Now go back to Isaiah 62. Verse 2 says, And her salvation as a lamp that burns a Gentile shall see your righteousness, all clean kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. So we're told that after Gentiles come in, God's people will be given a new name. And they should be, because God's people now have a new purpose. Well, you remember... Then in Acts chapter 9, Saul is baptized. Acts chapter 10, he's going to be the apostle of the Gentiles. Then in Acts chapter 10, Peter sees a vision about what he doesn't know yet is about Gentiles coming in. But he just gets sort of confused. Then someone knocks at his door and says, hey, Cornelius needs to see you. So he goes down to the household of Cornelius. While he's there, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius as he had the apostles at the beginning. He began to speak with other tongues as the apostles did. And he said, of a truth, now I've figured it out. God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth God and worketh righteous, the same is accepted of him. Acts 10, 34 and 35. Then in Acts 11, Paul goes to the city of Antioch. And that message starts with the Jews, but then it spreads on to the Gentiles. And it says, Acts 11 and verse 26, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And the most important name you wear today is the name Christian. It's not the name that your father gave you, your mother gave you. It's not the name that's on your birth certificate. The most important name we wear is Christians. And the name Christian just simply means I belong to Christ. He is the owner. He is the one who calls the shots. Therefore, we have our new name. 
See, what we need is just like that water to be transformed. I don't know what was going through the people's mind when Jesus, when his mother said, whatsoever he said to you, do it. And they went down and they got the water and just started pouring it up into those pots. And as they poured it up, the next thing they were told was what? They weren't told, taste it and see what's in there now. They were told, remember whatsoever he says you do it, he says, now take it to the governor of the feast. Not test it, not smell it, not look at it. Take it to the governor of the feast. That took some faith. That something's going to happen here. Because had they taken six pots of water to the governor of the feast who was wanting that wine, guess what would have happened? Well, first of all, they wouldn't have got no tip. Secondly, they would have been fired. He, the, these were the waiters, if you were, at the wedding feast. Mary had already encringed upon Jesus to ask him to do anything at all. Jesus is there at the wedding. Mary apparently has some responsibility. She at least acts like she has some responsibility at the wedding feast. Then Jesus is there at the wedding and his disciples, it says, so apparently they knew somebody that was involved in the marriage. We're not whole who it was. And Mary, you remember, says, we have a problem. And Jesus looks at her like that time, you remember, when the Indians surrounded the Lone Ranger and Tonto? And the Lone Ranger looked at Tonto and said, we have a problem. And Tonto said, who is we, white man? Jesus said, what do you mean we? <laughs> but he fixed it by transforming the water into wine. And we too need to be transformed. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells us about our need to be transformed. And tells us how to be transformed. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. God wants to transform you. You know how you're going to be transformed? Well, look. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.17. There we find out if we be at a certain location, we will be a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. How does one get into Christ? Galatians 3, 26-27 tells us, Know ye not that as many of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's how one gets into Christ. That's when one becomes a new creature. See, God wants our hearts. But He wants our hearts not just for weekend visitation. But for full custody, Hebrews 
The Hebrew writer tells us, Exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, if you allow God to begin this transformation work in you and you get out of the way, he'll finish it. That's what Philippians tells me in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, where it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't make any halfway wine, halfway water, does he? He makes full transformation. Transformation begins when you do three things. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. We'll start reading there about verse 20. He says, But you have not so learned Christ. If you're going to be transformed, you're going to have to learn Christ. When are you going to learn Christ? Verse 21 tells you. When you hear and are taught the truth. Three things. Hear and taught the truth. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. If you want to be transformed, you've got to learn Jesus. You learn Him when you hear of Him. You're taught of Him. John 6, 45, 46, they shall all be taught of God, everyone that has heard and learned. And you have to be taught the truth. If you're not taught the truth, then you can't be transformed properly. Error will not transform anybody. There is a way that seemeth, in the, that seemeth right in a man, but the end of the ways thereof are the ways of death, the proverb writer tells us. When you do this, according to verses 20 through, 22 through 24, you'll be transformed. He says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man that grows corrupt according to the seedful lust, be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may be a new man which is created into God in true righteousness and holiness. There's that transformation. But it comes when I do these things. When I learn Jesus, when I hear Jesus, and when I'm taught the truth of Jesus. Now, notice three life-transforming things that you've got if you're a Christian the world doesn't have. First of all, if you've been transformed by a renewed mind, you don't have to fear the future. I say that because even when things look bleak, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. In Genesis 50 and verse 20, when the whole story of Joseph was over with, and his father was on death's bed, death's bed his brothers were concerned that there was going to be some revenge coming about. And Joseph replied to him in Genesis 50 and verse 20, The things that you did, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. Even when the world throws evil at us, if we've been transformed by God, then guess what? God means it for our good. It can strengthen us. It can change us. It can shape us. But what evil cannot do is defeat us if God is on our side. Secondly, you don't have to fear the future. You don't have to be primarily concerned with pleasing your fellow man. 
How many people just drive themselves crazy trying to please everybody else other than God? In Galatians 1 and verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, If I were still pleasing men, I should not be a servant of God. You can't please men. Because men, what men want today, they don't want tomorrow. What men want today, they're fickle. Always have been, always will be, because they're always changing. And you can't keep up. Thirdly, if we've been transformed, then we no longer have to be concerned with pleasing the flesh. Galatians 5 and verse 13, uh, the Galatian writer tells us there that we're to give no occasion to the flesh. When you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only use not your liberty as opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And why would we, when the earth and the works and all things therein are going to be what? Second Peter 3.10. Burnt up. Let me go to Matthew 19 and we'll close there as we think about transformation. Matthew 19, we'll start in verse 16. Rich man comes to Jesus with a question. He addresses him as good teacher, indicating he thinks Jesus has something to teach him. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, this rich man says to him, which ones? As if there's some question. So Jesus replies, you should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I really, I wish I could have been there to find out for sure that my theory is correct. My theory is that this guy interrupts Jesus. Because if you go back and read those Ten Commandments, the part that apply on the man-to-man side, he's just given a number of them, but he hadn't given the last one. And had he given the last one, I don't think the man could have given the same reply to Jesus that he gave. Because what Jesus said, what he says to Jesus is, All these have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? I say that because the last commandment you remember in that list is, Thou shalt not covet. And this guy, that was his problem. So I really believe that he interrupts Jesus and cuts him off with his reply right there because that's where he wants to cut him off. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Wow. When the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard it, they were astonished, and they said, Who then can be saved? Now, I've got to put this in a context, because when we read this, we're so confused. I say we're confused, because 
When we see rich man, what do we think? Corrupt, money grubber, covetous, evil, bad guy, get him, tax him, give me the money, all the rest of it, right? Now that, that's what we've been conditioned in our society to think. If somebody's got a lot of money, they stole it. They didn't earn it righteously. That's not their preconceptions. Their belief was, remember, from John 9, when the man was born blind, why was he born blind? There's only two possibilities. This man sent to his parents. Well, if God gave you the bad, if you did the bad, what does God give you if you do the good? You get the good. I mean, in their theology, the Jeffersons must have been living for Christ, and that's why they moved up to the east side. Now, I'm not telling you that either theology or way to look at the world is necessarily right, because people is people. There's rich good people and poor good people. But that's the way they look to the world. If somebody's got a lot, it's because God has blessed them. That, that's what's going on in the book of Job. As long as Job had a lot, they all were thinking, boy, he's, he's such a fine citizen. Boy, I bet God loves him a lot. And as soon as God lost it all, what do they do? Job, you need to confess your sin. What sin did I commit? Well, you had to sin because you ain't got nothing now. You had something. And that's what the whole thing was about. So, it's in that context that the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, who again, not like us, we, we see rich, we think bad guy. When they saw rich, they thought good guy. This, is, this guy, God has blessed him because he surely is one of the chosen elect. And Jesus says to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all you have. Give the poor and follow me. That's why the disciples say to him, Lord, if this guy ain't getting in, who is? That's the context. If this guy ain't getting in, who is? And look at the reply. With God, all things are possible. But with men... It's impossible. I tell you that story in our closing to tell you when it comes to being transformed, God is the only one who can transform us. Amen. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Right. It don't work that way. God is the only one who can transform us. You know, if Mary had gone to anybody else in John chapter 2 and said, we're out of wine, do something about it, nothing would have been done as far as transformation. She might have gone to somebody that had a lot of money, and they might have gone down and bought some wine and brought it in. She might have gone to somebody who had a lot of wine in their wine cellar. He might have got it and brought it up. They might have gone to somebody who who had a lot of Cracker Jacks that were very sticky and gave them out and made their mouths stick together so they couldn't drink anything anymore. I don't know what else they could have come up with. But only one person
could have transformed water into wine. And Jesus is the only one that can transform you and me. If you're here and never obeyed the gospel of Christ, give him the chance to get started with that transformation process. By doing what we've already outlined, starts the process. If you want to be a new creature, get into Christ. You want to get into Christ, get into there. Having heard the word, believe it, repent of your sins, confess Christ, you can be baptized into Christ, and that makes you that new creature and places you in Christ on that highway to holiness. And if in the past you've done that and wandered back out to the world, come to the Lord. Come as we stand as we sing.